Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lauren Groff, whose latest novel, Matrix, is set in an impoverished abbey in 12th century England. Despite their supposedly sacred status, life for the nuns at the abbey is, to coin a phrase, nasty, brutish, and often short. That is, until Marie de France is banished there by Eleanor of Aquitaine, and, after initially despairing of her fate, determines to make the best of her lot and to, quote, do all that she can to exalt herself on this worldly plane all the while making those who cast her out sorry for what they did. What follows is an extraordinary story of transformation, visions, leaps of faith, vicious battles, friendship and creativity, as well as, to cite USA Today, a character study to rival Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell. While there may be some truth in that oft-quoted L.P. Hartley line that the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there, what Matrix shows us so beautifully is that while perhaps people centuries ago did indeed do things very differently, their impulses, hopes, dreams and desires were most likely very much like our own. Matrix is a true original, unlike any literary experience you will have this or any year, probably one of the many reasons for which it was selected as a finalist for the 2021 National Book Award. Lauren Groff, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be here. So I'd like to start with uh, Marie de France. Now, I'm going to confess my ignorance and say that it wasn't until after I'd read the novel that I realised while doing a brief bit of Googling that she was actually based on a real historical character. Um, Now, we'll get to the creative liberties perhaps you take with Marie as the conversation goes on. But I'd like to begin with your first encounter with her and the moment that you realised that she was the perfect subject for a novel. Absolutely. So in uh, at university, I studied uh, both French literature and English literature. I was a dual major. And I'm, I'm a hyper anxious human. I have a lot of social anxiety. So I don't like large uh, um, seminars. I, I just never enjoyed them. So I would go to my professors and ask them if it'd be possible just to do a one-on-one tutorial like the ones at Oxford or Cambridge. And a lot of times they said yes, just because... Uh, you know, nobody likes to say no to someone who's so eager to study the things that they love the most. Uh, so I had an amazing professor, uh, Dr. Paul Rockwell in French, who let me take a full year of medieval French or ancien français. And I fell in love with um, stories of courtly romance, you know, um, Le Roman de la Rose and um, uh, Le Roman de Roland. And, like there's so many incredible ones. But the the person I fell in love with the, the voice and the brain that I fell in love with the most was that of Marie de France, who was a real life person. She's the first published female poet that we know of in the French language. She was from England. Oh, no, sorry, from France. But then she she got transplanted at some point to England 
But of course, because she was a woman at a time when uh, women were only considered important if they were saints or queens. And in that sense, mm -hmm. their importance was relational to their fathers, their sons, their husbands. Uh, because she was a woman, nobody really wrote down who she was or the, the mm -hmm. details of her life. So um, for the past, oh gosh, how, how old am I? I don't even know. Uh, 20 something years, I have been just enthralled to this brain. And I, I tried to do translations of her lay. Um, I wasn't brave enough. You know, I, I, I'm in love with a lot of the, the new kind of wild translations, like the Beowulf by Maria Devana Headley or the... Um, the uh, the new Odyssey by Emily. Oh, I know, I know, you know her name. I'm I'm blanking at the moment. Um, oh, um, um, yes, uh, Emily, Emily Wilson. Emily Wilson, yeah, Emily Wilson. And so uh, I just failed. I failed to do these lay, and eventually uh, other things happened, and this idea to write this novel sort of exploded into existence. Mm. And so, as far as I understand it, we have her. We have her writing, but that's more or less all we have about her. So you said like nobody wrote anything down about her, uh, particularly, and and yet readers will be struck when they start reading Matrix by the very detailed and very elaborate and very unusual physical descriptions that you um, that you give of Marie. Now, is this is this something which you sort of extrapolated? from her writings or is it something which in some way just kind of came to you sort of from something in her text kind of made you made you think that this was the kind of woman that she was well there were are three very separate paths down which historians go when they try to explain the life of a potential life of Marie de France one is she might have been an abbess at say the abbey of Barking um she mm. might have been they say possibly Marie, the first daughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Uh, and they say she might, she was definitely a noble because she was literate, right? And, and women mm -hmm. at the time, the only ones who were literate were, were nobility. So I took all of these, these ideas and I chose the ones that I liked the best. And then I went to her text and both of her texts that we know for sure that she wrote, the, the lay and the fables. And I, I love them so much. I pulled out the strangest imagery and ideas that I could find in them. And I built a little piece of flash fiction out of just these ideas. It's sort of um, bricolage mm. <laughs> fiction. <laughs> and out of that, I started to see a person beneath. I don't know if it's the person beneath, but I was so entranced by the largeness and the hunger and the appetite and the almost the the subversive brain of the person I was reading into these images and these ideas that uh, of Marie came to fruition through her own words. I started to see mm -hmm. her as a very lusty, very corporeal human uh, who um, was larger than life in a lot of ways. And that's how my Marie was born. Mm. So I should say, of course, I said that she was... Um physically quite uh quite strange she is uh, you describe her as tall a giantess of a maiden her elbows and knees stick out sort of ungainly and um and so immediately we 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 have this this impression of a very imposing figure and yet when we first meet her she's only 17 um and so we have this kind of i guess paradox in 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 Marie we have somebody who's almost grown into her body physically but has a lot more 
emotional, intellectual growth in front of her. And that's definitely a sort of a, a very profound journey she makes once she, she reaches the Abbey. Yes, absolutely. And she's a very, um, a, a figure who is really uncertain at the beginning, somewhat because she was an outsider. She was raised among these really ferocious Virago women. Uh, she was taken <laughs> as a child on the Second Crusade, and it was a failed crusade, so she carried through that failure through her life. Uh, her aunts and her mother began dying or going to convents or getting married off. And so she was left alone and she felt, I think, probably abandoned. But also at the same time, too, her self-perception was profoundly and only molded by the people around her. Right. At the time, mm -hmm. there were no real mirrors. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they were not invented till 1835. And so if you wanted to take a look at yourself, you either looked at a body of still water and nobody looks good in a body of still water because you're looking down and everyone has jowls and it's like a little <laughs> fleshy, right? Or you're looking in a, um, a piece of polished metal, right? That's the only mm -hmm. other way to look at yourself. And metal is notoriously not, um, it's, it's warped a little bit, uh, no matter mm -hmm. how smooth it is. And so you, your self-image at the time unless you were painted perfectly and, and you could see yourself was basically gathered through the way other people looked at you. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I think since the beginning, since she was so tall, so ungainly, kind of rude, kind of smelled bad a little bit, had these old dresses, everyone around her reacted to her with disgust because she wasn't the person they wanted her to be. And so she internalized mm -hmm. all of this information into this really profoundly ugly figure, although she, she may not have been, but she didn't know that. Um, she, mm. she has, she had no way of understanding what she actually looked like. There were no selfies back in the day, right? <laughs> uh, no duck face in the mirror, you know, with makeup. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I, mean, I got we, away we, from we, your question. Sorry, Adam. Yeah. No, 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 that's quite all right. In fact, I'd like to stay with something you said um, about the, the mirror, because that's brings to the forefront something that I think really struck me while I was reading Matrix was the way in which you you thought yourself back into into 12th century England. So first of all, we have these things which one might not think of. So yeah, mirrors, of course, something which which seems almost almost so sort of embedded in our cultures that it, we think it might be something natural was in fact something which as you say, came in in the, did you say 18th century? And so... Yeah. 1830, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, it sort of shaped our, the way we engage with ourselves and the world so so profoundly. Um, so there's, of course, all of that sort of technical side, which I'd be very interested to hear about the research, but also the side of, I suppose, culture and language um, that you had to sort of almost think yourself out of structures. Um, I think particularly uh, concerning for example, the language of sex and sexuality, um, that it made me think when, when reading it, oh, we have this kind of developed vocabulary concerning sexuality at the moment, which is not accessible, which was inexistent to, um, to Marie. So would you be able to address those two elements, both the kind of, I guess, the, the technical research of finding out what life was like and thinking yourself back into the physical world, and also the, I guess, the sort of the, the intellectual framework of somebody of that period. 
Oh, sure. This was the, this is a brilliant question and nobody has ever asked me that actually after the hundreds of interviews. Um, so that was the biggest challenge in writing this book, bar none. There was, there's nothing else more complicated. Uh, the technical aspect was extraordinarily fun. I had a, a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of time going into the archives and looking at manuscripts and looking at the, the work of historians. Obviously, I'm not a historian, so I can fabricate some things that they don't mm -hmm. feel the, the right to do. Um, but uh, I really had to understand, as you said, um, systemic ideas of time and systemic ideas of hierarchy and culture mm -hmm. and the ways the ways that people did things and i think um that was really profoundly difficult i think um I, well, I'll, what i had to do was figure out sort of the day-to-day -day life and then build outward and then figure out sort mm -hmm. of the weekly life the monthly life the the large cycles i mean i'm not only talking about just the cycles on a farm, which in Florida in the 21st century, I've gotten so far away from, I couldn't tell you when the elderberries bloom in England, right? I don't know. Um, so I had to go back and actually look it up and see when the rogation days would have been, mm -hmm. when Easter was, it fell very differently every single year. And so you have to actually mm -hmm. do research into that. And I had to figure out sort of the liturgical cycles too, because mm -hmm. we're in an abbey, right? And, and so and it's a profoundly uh, cyclical. It's uh, the the systems works. It, they're almost wheels within wheels. And I had to understand mm -hmm. all of the different wheels that were turning at the same time, and the way that the gears were sort of interlocking. Uh, and that was very, very, very tricky. And luckily, I had a couple of good, great historians who were able to read the book and help me out um, mm. when I went wildly awry. <laughs> you know, like um, <laughs> yeah, um, which was good. And I, I'm sure other mistakes. Uh, made their way in and they were entirely my fault. The mm -hmm. intellectual way of doing things was uh, equally tricky. And I think uh, sometimes that happened in, over the course of writing where I would put down a line and say, well, okay, Lauren, is that actually true? Would mm -hmm. one have thought this way at the time? Sometimes um, I probably kept things that were unlikely because they were likely mm -hmm. to my character and they were necessary to the character as I mm. built her. And that is the, the precept of fiction that we reach for verisimilitude, which is not the same thing as verity, right? So ver verisimilitude yeah. is um, plausible deniability in mm. some ways. <laughs> um, so um at the at the same time too, I wanted to be as faithful as I possibly could mm -hmm. to the ways of uh, thinking and the ways of uh, of understanding the intellectual way of looking at the world. And so, what I did with Marie in particular is that I went back to the body. Um, mm -hmm. So she is. Uh, oh, she is a very strange person. She's very much an animal in a way that um, I think, you know, my whole family is full of animals where we're less civilized than most human beings. We need <laughs> our, our bodies need to move. I, I'm from people who if we don't run an hour every day, we become morose like Eeyore just walking around. <laughs> um, and the way that we 
we uh, sort of engage intellectually first always happens somatically. It's always mm -hmm. through physical sensation and that gets translated into thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. For instance, the way that I write is always longhand because I can only think longhand. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I went back to Marie and I made her into this animal and through the animal sensations, I was able to grasp at, an idea of the way that she would have thought about the world. Mm. So uh, it was through the way that she felt cold and felt um, in penance. They would lie on these cold stone floors in a cross formation in the chapel. And I, you know, I don't know how it feels to be in penance like that all night long, but I do know how it feels to, to feel cold stone on my face. Mm -hmm. So it was really through the body I was able to access sort of a different way of seeing the world, maybe a medieval way of seeing the world. Mm. And that puts me in mind also something I wanted to talk about, the way that um, you write about the, the the surrounding nature and the surrounding countryside as well, which is sort of, because um, England at that time was... I mean, it wasn't, it was, I, I'm not sure if we, we'd talk about it as a kind of pre-civilized land, because you had this sort of, it was in this strange situation where the Romans had been and gone. Um, the, you know, we were in that period, which is often, I think, sort of in a slightly derogatory fashion referred to as the dark ages. But of course you had this kind of, this culture which continued developing and and yet not on the same scale or not on, in the same ways as what had come before. And so I, I kind of had this sense of, it's funny, actually, um, with you being in Florida, because I remember somebody talking to me about um, nature in Florida and the way it's sort of, if left untouched, it will kind of reclaim houses and streets and, and things like that, which we, to a, which happens, I guess, in England, but to a, a to a lesser extent or probably less quickly. Um, but one thing we find about uh, nature as, as represented in Matrix and particularly the way that Marie uh, encounters it is a much more kind of writhing, seething nature than perhaps we're used to in our 21st century encounters with it. Oh, absolutely. And and to speak about the nature of Florida for a minute, um, we if you're not constantly vigilant, the vines will take over and in a week you're right. also be grass in the ground. Like we actually have right now currently a possum who is living in our walls, climbing up through and it bit through the air conditioning vent. And now we have thousands of dollars that we have to spend on air conditioning, which in Florida is a big deal. It's really horrible. So yes, nature wants to kill you here. Um <laughs> so, yes, so the England of the time was so fascinating to me because uh, in a lot of that time, there was a great thaw, actually, in England. There were mm. grapevines planted uh, at the time, and and which is not something one thinks of necessarily, mm. like English wine as yeah. something very beautiful yeah. and delicious. But uh, yeah, as John so Lennon said, English wine is like uh, French rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny yeah um exactly <laughs> um right uh i don't want to offend any british winemakers right now um but it's a you know, it's it was a slightly uh more teeming place of course because mm. there were fewer people uh the roman ruins were slowly being taken over by the forest uh nature was burgeoning right nature was mm. everywhere and uh you know the 
I think um, people's relationship to nature was obviously much closer as well, too, just because mm-hmm. we didn't have the mediation of screens back then right Mm -hmm. we um nobody read uh so and and people were living in smaller cities if they lived in cities but most people were in the countryside so Mm -hmm. you you would understand and there were no clocks either right so so in order to pay attention to the passing of time to know what time of day it was you actually had to look at the way that the world was reacting you'd Mm -hmm. you would see the way the flowers opened in the morning and know exactly what time it is you'd see where the position of the sky um uh, the sun happened to be, and then you'd know what time it was. So um, it's one of those uh, ex- uh, times when that was one of the, the, I guess, intellectual pathways that I had to break, this understanding of what time was and how the day mm-hmm. grew and shrank a- according to the seasons and um, mm-hmm. and and uh, the precision with which knowing what time it was was very was not there. And so um, Mm -hmm. paying attention to the natural world was just a far more likely thing back then than it Mm -hmm. is now, unfortunately, right? I think Mm -hmm. part of the reason why we're in the climate catastrophe we're in is because we do not pay close attention on a daily basis or on a Mm -hmm. a moment-to-moment basis to the unbelievable nature of nature, right? the, mm-hmm. the, the, the strangeness of it and, and the beauty of it and, and the way that it yeah. changes through the day. Yeah. Which, which, which feeds into um, the religion, I think as well, because um, obviously Mary is, uh, she, she goes to, to an abbey, she becomes a nun. This is um, ostensibly the, um, the, the Christian, the Catholic religion that she is, um, that she she was raised in, even though at the moment she, um, you, you say that you know, the religion she was raised in had always seemed vaguely foolish to her. Um, and there seems to be something that sort of takes place at this particular spot in England and this particular sort of encounter with this this landscape and these people where the the sort of, the, I guess, the kind of the, the refined way in which she had encountered religion in her upbringing encounters the this seething writhing nature that we that we talked about and sort of produces something new within her yeah yeah i think um yes i think she i mean she wasn't raised an atheist obviously she was raised catholic as one was Mm -hmm. but there are different variations of catholicism and different variations of religious fervor throughout history in every human heart and uh, I I think we don't make space for the uh, nominal Catholic mm-hmm. in the past. I mean, we tend to believe that everyone was very dogmatic, and her uh-huh. her Catholicism was somewhat atheistic in some ways, mm-hmm. or or she is somewhat her own. And I think too, she began to assert dominance over the abbey, and that extended to dominance over the wild landscape which in mm. some ways uh, was a benefit to her nuns and her abbey, but in other ways it uh, was an unthinking, um, I guess, repetition of a lot of the hierarchies she was, she would have thought that mm. she was sub- trying to subvert through her own mm. ideas and her own life and her own um, understanding. And so uh, her relationship to nature was both, 
deeply and daily involved in sort of caring for and and uh, making sure it cared for her nuns, but also the attitude of absolute domination and bending mm-hmm. to her own will. I mean, she's she's sort yeah, of an yeah. arrogant person. She's narcissistic. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, she's incredibly complex. I say narcissism is definitely one of the the strands that we find in her, but one among you know multitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that 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 sort of um, that quest for for dominance. So as you say, once she uh, finds her feet at the abbey and determines, okay, this is my fate, but I will I will make the best of it. I will I will exert myself within the the cage in which I've been placed, so to speak. Um, it's see it's driven by one of the central relationships at the heart of the book, which is between Marie and Eleanor. Um, and now this is a, a relationship which is, in a way, when I was reading it, it reminded me somewhat of um, this relationship between uh, Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, with the kind of these two these two queens who had who seemingly never met. And yet we're kind of constantly circling each other um, politically and with sort of matching ambitions and rival ambitions. Um, so could you yet talk a little bit about um, how that sort of developed for you as, as one of the, the driving uh, forces of the story? Sure. One of the the incredible patron saints of this relationship was uh, from the the book, The Door by Magda Svabo, which is, she's a Hungarian writer. Mm. It's an amazing book. It's so good. I don't know. Uh, well, it is, it was the, one of the first seeds where um, there's a writer and there's a cleaning lady and mm. there's this wild tussle throughout the book over power and privacy. Mm. And so that was the original seed. And then I started thinking because Marie first meets Eleanor when she is actually the queen of the the French and not the English yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Marie is very young and Eleanor is this beautiful, very young queen on the Second Crusade. And then, and she keeps her in her eye because meeting a queen at that time um, in that space was basically dazzling. It was a vision, right? It's almost Mm -hmm. like a a, a given vision from the Virgin Mary in some ways. Um, (laughs) And then, um, and then, of course, uh, Eleanor ended up marrying Henry II, who is Marie's legitimate brother. Marie is illegitimate. And so Marie, when everyone dies, is taken in by the courts uh, in England. And she she's being filled in the court uh, of England with these narratives that were, were brought into being in the court of Eleanor Backwitten, right? The, the courtly mm-hmm. romances, where it's a, it's a set of narratives with a very clear and rigid set of rules, some of which are very subversive to the precepts of the church at the time. For instance, mm-hmm. uh, in the church, adultery is a big no-no, but <laughs> in a courtly love, um, being married on other, either side does not prevent one from being loved. Mm-hmm. And these uh, a lot of the precepts are about having this loved one be so far above you, sort of like a shining grail toward which you bend your ideas and your thoughts, but you may never touch this person. So mm. she's she's coming into these narratives. She's taking them into herself. They're they're taking over in a certain way. And and she puts Eleanor in that, that place, in that courtly love where Marie herself is the knight and um, 
the Eleanor is the lady, the lady who is idealized mm -hmm. and, and becomes this object of lust and love. And then over the course of their relationship as Marie in anger, well, first in pleading, tries to, to bring herself back to the court through writing her lay. And then in anger, tries to prove herself against Eleanor and takes her as a model and uh, slowly becomes almost a friend and then someone mm -hmm. against whom she's fighting. So that this relationship goes back and forth and it's never constant. It's always in flux and it's always changing and it's always predicated on love and hate at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's also one that is, as you, you mentioned about the narratives that is fueled by stories, I guess, rather than actual contact. Because one of the things that is essential about the way people uh, interacted at that time is that there was actually very little physical contact. So there were, you know, in, in, in the book, I think they're in the same room together, maybe off the top of my head, like maybe three or four so three or four times and the rest there's there's exchanging of letters but there's also the um receiving of stories so what marie hears about eleanor from um the stories that come to her from her her sources in in the cities and then what eleanor hears about marie from sources that she has within within the abbey and i found that an incredibly interesting way that their their relationship became became layered by these stories so there it wasn't so much to do with who each person was, but what what stories were told about each of them to the other. Yeah, it's the intimacy of narrative, mm. right? In the in the layers of narrative. I think um, this is one of those things. You think that you write a different book every single time, and you're trying to radically destroy the previous <laughs> book, and then you end up writing something that has the same principles. So I think in some ways the the, the idea about um, narrative and sort of self-perception through narrative and perception of the other through narrative is something that was in mm -hmm. Fates and Furies as well, my previous novel. Mm, of course. And I, it's probably something that I, I will not get away from, as I will probably not get away from utopian communities mm. and ideals. Mm. Um, or uh, I don't even know what else I'm obsessed by because, you know, when your <laughs> face is pressed up against the rug, you can't see the pattern. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Later that morning, after the meeting, Marie goes into the warming room off the kitchens where her nuns are sitting on their stools with the books they're meditating over and low murmurings. Among the nuns at the abbey, only Marie practices silent reading, and every time she does, it makes Goda shiver and protest shrilly at her witchy magic. Yet, if there is no inner reading, how can there be any inner life? Marie thinks, and imagines the cold, blowing desert that must stretch inside her subprioress. The obedientaries sit closest to the fire in order of rank, and the child oblates shiver farthest from the fire nearest the cold. Marie closes the door behind her and does not move to take her seat in the place of greatest heat, but feels the chill wood against her back. When she will step forward, the nuns will hear of the new plans. She will share what she has been given— for now she savors the vision inside her. The light through the windows is watery and angled so that it shines through the breath of the nuns as they read aloud, the rising breath silvering, the streams of word made visible, word transformed to ghost as it rises from these mouths. 
The noise in the room is a low, sweet hum without pause, the voices mixing so beautifully that the impression is not a tapestry of individual threads, but a solid sheet like pounded gold. With their heads bent over their books like this, their words palely shining, she understands that the abbey is a beehive, all her good bees working together in humility and devotion. This life is beautiful. This life with her nuns is full of grace. Marie sends a prayer to the Virgin in gratitude. And then she steps forward. They are stirred from their reading to look up at her. They see the remaining radiance of this day's strange woman tree vision shining out of her, and it casts itself like the light of a fire upon their raised faces. She begins to speak of her newest vision. And, and, that, and that sort of that idea of the utopian um, communities, I guess, uh, brings us on to the transformation that uh, Mary brings to the Abbey. And I think it's one of the most gratifying uh, moments of the book when we spent uh, probably 50 to 100 pages with with Mary. And we're 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 not entirely sure what she's going to become because she is you know, she has this determination, but she's also seems to have been. Uh, had her wings clipped in a way, I suppose, that she's she's been put in this place where the chances of doing anything remarkable with her life uh, seem to be severely limited. And then through essentially an effort of will on her part and maybe drawing on that narcissistic streak that you talked about earlier, she begins this internal transformation, which then develops into an external transformation of not only her life, but the lives of the nuns and the, and then ultimately the, the surrounding um, countryside of the, of, um, of the Abbey. I'm, I'm curious to know to what extent was that something that was sort of pure imagination for you? Like, was it, did you get a sense that it would be possible for an abbess at that time to, to essentially occupy the, the role of a, um, almost like a feudal lord, I suppose, and gain territory and exert um, influence over it and, and terraform, I suppose, the, uh, the, the environment they find themselves in. Oh, that was historically accurate for sure. So I actually tried very hard not to fabricate. There are some small things that I, I pushed at. But uh, yes, so actually by the time much later, many centuries later, Cromwell destroyed all the abbeys. Some of the abbeys uh, in England were larger landowners put together than the crown. So so mm. there's always been this incredible amount of power that the church has exerted in uh, England in particular. And at the time... An abbess uh, was a very powerful figure. And in fact, some of the royal abbeys, uh, because by dint of being so powerful, so large, uh, the, the abbess or the abbot uh, became a baronet or a baroness of the crown. So mm. this was actually true and actually real, which, which meant that uh, they had to feed some of the, the men from the lands to the war machine, right? And they had to levy tax or give taxes to the crown and therefore had to levy very stiff taxes mm. against their own people. They did acquire a great deal of land and they acquired it uh, through the dowries of the nuns, but also through very savvy uh, 
business-like um, actions. And so that's the thing that excited me very, very deeply mm. about this was to see in this time, in this place, when we of the 21st century believe that the the plight of women was really low. And it was, let's be honest, uh, you know, even mm-hmm. noble women were basically like horses in human form meant um, to produce, <laughs> uh, to produce, yeah beautiful children and that's about it and were traded from family to family um mm-hmm. i um, mean even the, up to the point of princess diana it was she was still talked about in much the same way yeah a hundred i mean look at the way that all of the royals now are being treated yeah. i mean megan you know she she's a horse who bit at the hands that's better and <laughs> that's why people don't like her very much i like her um but <laughs> I think so. Our perception is that uh, it was a very close, very sad, very um, difficult time to be a woman, and it was. But there mm. was this um, almost escape hatch to the convents mm. and to the abbeys at the time, where if you were not meant for marriage, and not everybody, obviously not everybody is, um, there was mm. a way to have a vocation outside. And um, these abbesses were generally daughters of the nobility because, again, they're the only ones who are allowed to read and to write because they, if they had been uh, married, they would have been expected to take over these great estates while the men mm. were off fighting or in the crusades or doing some other things, too. So these women were incredible business people. They had to manage mm. Staff of a thousand. They had to actually get rents from people. They had to had to plan for the future, and they had to make sure that the crops were uh, in rotation and deep enough to feed everyone under their their management. And so, uh, no, they were incredible. They were incredible business people at a time when that was not something that I think a lot of people today believe that women were capable of doing um, back then. Mm. But but yeah, abbesses were yeah. And that's it. It gives us this kind of, as you say, a a complexified view, I suppose, of the um, the condition of women at that time. And and that's and that's central to the book, because um, if this escape hatch is taken, the uh, the moral almost seems to be that. The the, 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 these group group of women working together are essentially unstoppable. and so you have, um, and I, I don't think I'm going to talk about the partic- one particular structural thing that Mary does because it's a, it's such a wonderful surprise, and I for reason <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. But let's say that she she builds what is essentially an impenetrable fortress um, of women, um, and goes about constructing a society, a world without men, I think an island of women, you say, mm-hmm. um, at a moment. And then so we get into the very sort of interesting dynamics of what that would be like. Um, and there's one moment, I think, where somebody remarks that, oh, generally, you know, these um, these uh, abbeys of, of nuns are kind of places of strife and um you know snark and and things like that and that's and that's not at all the the world that marie creates no not at all well i mean part of it is because she uh is kind of an imperious master right she's very domineering <laughs> 
Um, and she doesn't, and this is one of those things built into the Benedictine rule, which I found very interesting is that nobody has any time. So if, mm-hmm. right, they're constantly praying many times a day. And then if they're not praying, they're working really hard because work is prayer. And then they're mm-hmm. sleeping, but not very much because they have to get up in the middle of the night and go down and pray again and come back home. Mm-hmm. So there's no real time to um, create any sort of resistance to the relentless ongoing rush of life there mm-hmm. um yeah so but um marie does build this place this this island of women and uh i too don't want to talk about how exactly <laughs> she does that um but it's it's um I I would like to signal, however, that it comes out of two separate things that I found often in the historical record. The first one being the idea of the unicursal. Oh, well, no, I'm going to tell it. Um, (laughs) Can I say the unicursal labyrinth, right, which happens. um, You can see it in the Cathedral of Chartres. Um, It's one of the Mm -hmm. most beautiful things I've ever seen in person. It's uh, this inset labyrinth that uh you go through over the course it's supposed to symbolize the pilgrimage to to jerusalem and you go in mm-hmm. one way and it sort of folds around sort of like the lobes in a brain and you finally get to the end point um and i didn't have a, a real structure for this book i was just writing it in scenes for probably eight separate drafts until i i understood mm. that this this was the deep underlying architectural structure of this book and it's it's um the way that it sort of folds back and forth is in the patterns um, Mm -hmm. made is the way that this book is built. And two, it came out of this apocryphal story about Eleanor Bagwaton, which I love so much. And if you don't mind, I'm going to tell it here, which is um, that Henry II, her husband, second husband, uh, you know, they were, they fought a lot, Eleanor and Henry. She, she got her, their children to try to rise up against him. Um, Henry, the young king and uh, John and Richard. And um, obviously he didn't like her very much. He put her into captivity for some time. And while she was in captivity, he had this mistress named Rosamond. And one of the apocryphal stories is that he built this garden labyrinth, this bower all around her to protect her from the wrath of Eleanor. But the story is <laughs> Eleanor was so omnipotent. And she she really was in the, in the stories of the time. She's this sort of powerful semi-sorceress woman um, she, that she was so powerful that she found a way in and poisoned Rosamond to death, mm. uh, which I think is really, really funny and wonderful. <laughs> and I thought about, you know, a labyrinth um, is like keeping uh, the hated object out. Uh, and that became sort of a motif of the book as well. Mm. It's interesting you use the word um, sorceress because um, when we just talked about Marie there, we have a sense, and it's definitely true. I mean, you just described these abbesses as great uh, business people. Um, and there's definitely this very pragmatic, very practical, very grounded side to Marie that she's able to um, to uh, enact this transformation, this terraforming of, of herself, of, of the Abbey. But alongside that, um, there is the religious, perhaps mystical, magical side, which 
kind of encroaches more and more on Mary's life as we as we follow the 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 arc of her of her years. Um, it made me think we'll go back over my notes because I think early on in the book um, you write that nuns or nuns are suspect, unnatural sisters to witches, and that that concept of Marie being in some way. Yeah, sort of aligned with witchcraft, aligned with magic, and aligned with a sort of a clairvoyant or a visionary is an equally important part of her story as the the kind of the pragmatic, practical business person who is able to transform this abbey. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about witches when I thought about nuns, which is, it probably <laughs> sounds counterintuitive, but... Uh, the dominant patriarchal structures of the time did not like it when women asserted autonomy mm. over their bodies and their lives at same same as now and what a witch was was really in a lot of senses a woman who was was autonomous who was mm. maybe someone who had uh, money or who had the like land and she was called a witch so that she she could be stripped of her land right Mm-hmm. So, um, and nuns at the same time too uh, are are passionate, autonomous creatures, uh, external to the hierarchies imposed by patriarchy, patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they're in a separate patriarchal society, which is the Catholic Church. So it's like frying pan fire. Which one is better? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Um, but so that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect uh, that I really was so excited about when I was doing this uh, historical research was looking at actual mystics of the time, this medieval mystics. So mm. there's so many of them and they're so brilliant. I am. Um, there's like uh, Julian of Norwich, of course, there's, of course, um, um, oh my gosh. And now all of them, when, whenever I talk about things, I get so excited that my brain actually becomes a sieve. Uh, <laughs> the, my favorite is Hildegard von Bingen, right? She's just the very, very greatest of the mystics. She's a polymath. She's incredible. She, um, she was a musician. We still play her music. It's so good. Uh, she she wrote this medical treatise that was used for 400 years after. She's just this brilliant, brilliant person. She was a mystic. And I believe very firmly that she had a true vocation, that the, the visions that she was given were truly given to her. But at the same time, and many things can be true at once, she was also this um, very, very brilliant, savvy genius who was able to mm-hmm. use these ephemeral abstract gifts given by God and she made them into power power Mm. in the real world not just power on the you know the spiritual plane so in the material world she took these these visions and they gave her authority they gave her money Mm -hmm. to build her own Mm -hmm. abbey they give her lands because of the money they gave her um potent power over the course of politics of the time because she was the advisor to kings and popes. I mean, so Mm -hmm. to be a person who is so smart, who is able to take uh, the abstract, make it concrete, uh, I think that that was something that I was deeply inspired by. And Mm -hmm. I gave Marie a lot of the the actual visions of a lot of mystics, male and female at the time, that actually uh, turned the church or the vision of the church away from the hyper- um, masculine idea mm-hmm. into a more feminized vision or feminized idea mm-hmm. of what the church could have been, uh, maybe somewhat more maternal, somewhat more caring. Somewhat, she, she makes her own body into a church in a certain way too. Mm. Yeah. It's it's interesting that 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 sort of 
um i guess having the two sides having the having the visions and then also having the savviness to 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 know what to do with them um and we find that um particularly with marie it's it's the moment when she commits them to paper um and that that seems to be very important it's not it's not just the fact that she had these visions but she finds a way to kind of concretize them in a way that will speak and therefore i suppose pass on their effect uh, in some respect to 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 other people yes because that's the magic of writing right i mean that's what mm. happens it's 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 the it's alchemy it's um it's the transference of ghost to flesh um that it's mm-hmm. basically the opposite of uh transubstantiation right like it's it's really like it's not just flesh taking into you you are actually putting your actual ghost into other people and so when she does take this um incredible vision that she has been given and she puts it into the world suddenly it becomes real and it becomes real in a way Mm -hmm. that can drive her actions and and drive Mm -hmm. her her forward thinking. Uh, of mm. course, I mean, there's something in me in these moments talking about the act of writing itself because I do think it's magic. <laughs> and it's, mm. you know, something that it's, it's my own witchy magic that I, you know, get to do on a daily basis and I get to read other people's witchy, witchy magic all, all day long too. And that's a great glory of being alive mm. now and being alive in the, the time of literacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before we finish, because we are we are running out of time, I just would just like to talk a little bit about those those visions, because um, and again, without going into too much detail, um, you mentioned about the the more um, the more feminine, the more maternal, the um, a vision of the of the church that these that these these visions um, produced, and specifically through a kind of rapprochement between the two great women of Christian mythology, namely the Virgin Mary and Eve. Um, and it put me in mind of something I, I may be misquoting here or, or misattributing, uh, <laughs> but I, I think it was the, the writer Joseph Campbell who was talking about how much more sense the story of the Garden of Eden would be if you flipped the roles of Adam and Eve. So, you know, just, just the, the story of creation of sort of you know, Eve being born of Adam's rib doesn't make much natural sense to us. And you can very easily see how that could have been a sort of a patriarchal perversion of um, the myth of the myth of, uh, yeah, the origins of recreation. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, there's, there seems to be at the moment, I think a very, um, it seems to be a very fertile moment, so to speak, for this kind of revisiting and this rapprochement. It seems to sort of speak very much to the um, to the zeitgeist in a way. Yeah, I think a lot of the narratives in uh, the any sort of church are narratives of women being pitted against each other. When mm-hmm. uh, that's something that I always want to uh, undermine because I don't think that that actually happens more. But yes, mm-hmm. I think um, you're right about the the Garden of Eden. I absolutely love that. I think uh, I've always thought that penis envy is not a thing, but creation envy is. Right. I and mean, my husband mm-hmm. actually said this when I was pregnant uh, with my two sons. He was like, I wish that I could actually give birth. You know, like, I, I mean, that's <laughs> such, right? It's such profound envy to be able to create life within oneself. I suppose where, where, where I'd like to finish is um, 
with with the concept of like every life um and you know i i don't think it's would be considered a spoiler since we essentially follow mary's arc from a young girl to the end of her life to say that the the last quarter last third of the book is about in certain ways decline and uh and the potential inevitability of the um of the collapse of what marie has has built um and in many ways i found that quite a difficult section to read in a way because we had we'd been with mary on this journey and it really made me think that so many narratives in a way sell us short they sort of they take us on the journey to success and then kind of leave us there and then this very important last quarter you demonstrate in this book is a moment of profound insight and not necessarily i guess a moment of despair no it, that is something that i have gotten from thinking through the idea of utopian noble doomed to fail exercises which is uh basically if you look at life every life is a utopian mm-hmm. project right <laughs> because um right i mean we do our best and then one day we fail mm-hmm. and it's it's going to happen to all of us but that doesn't mean that failure is the definition of what we do and that it's not worth doing it right and i think that that is something that um i struggled with i struggled with when i was bringing my kids into the world uh, thinking oh I, am i bringing someone in just to suffer for forever and the answer is yes but also the answer is but what a beautiful thing mm-hmm. life is and uh and and understanding that there is death at the end of it actually makes it more beautiful mm-hmm. more profound more moving the fact that we're we'll all be forgotten someday. The fact that humans will vanish from the face of the earth and yet there's going to be life on every level mm-hmm. all the way down to the core, the molten core of earth. That's a beautiful thing to think through and to to remember and to imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think in the larger ge- geologics, geological sense of time, uh, the mere blip of humanity on the earth is um, a startling, wonderful dream. Uh, and I want to keep that in mind when I write. And I think that is the perfect place for us to to leave the conversation. Um, <laughs> Matrix is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company uh, in the bricks and mortar store. Of course, it's available on our website. We we ship around the world or from your local neighborhood in, independent bookstore, wherever, wherever that may be. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Lauren Groff, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It was a profound pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr. Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Freiman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.